Please stand for the reading of the word. This comes from Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. So admittedly, I'm, I'm just slightly more excited than usual um, about preaching the word, mostly for, for a tiny little thing that this was the third time I tried to get Telly to read, and finally she was able to do it. So um, I'm just excited that finally the circumstances worked out. But um, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, before we dive in to our message, um, I just ask if you would join me in prayer. Um, for the ministry of the word. Lord, um, I'm so grateful that you speak. You speak to us regularly through, through the word. And we get to hear your word every week and listen to you. And we get to listen to your word and read your word throughout the course of the week. Um, and we know that there are times when familiarity um, can can breed a coldness or callousness um, that, that especially at times when um, something is just a, a seemingly simple teaching, um, especially if it's familiar, that our eyes and minds and hearts can kind of want to just slide by it as though we already know. We already know what you want to say to us uh, without deeply thinking about and deeply applying it to ourselves. I know I've been guilty of this, um, and I just pray that this morning you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, um, guide us, convict us, challenge us, um, encourage us, and help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in step with him so that we do, in fact, continue to grow more into the image of your son, Jesus, because it is in his name and for his glory that we come. Amen. So we are in the final stages of both our series in Galatians, um, but also in, in terms of the broader series of teaching through the mission and vision of Remedy Church. And so we've gone through the going portion, who we are as, to, as a church to be a going church. We've gone through the gathering and then 
through the book of Galatians, we have been going through what it means that we are, a, we are to be a teaching church, that we are teaching the whole counsel of the word of God. And so we've been teaching through the book of Galatians. And within the book of Galatians, we have been focused on the gospel of God, the, the beauty of that. We started with Paul challenging the, the, the churches within the Galatian region of Asia Minor and challenging them that they were, they were in danger and maybe even starting to abandon the gospel, the true gospel, and sake of, for sake of this false gospel being proclaimed by the Judaizers. And he, he, starts, he, he started the book with a defense of it, a defense of the gospel by looking, at, um, by looking at his own ministry as an apostle, by looking at the ministry, what it has to say, how it lines up. They confirmed it by looking at the nature of the gospel itself and what it has to say, how it lines up with the rest of Scripture and the truth of it, as well as the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. He goes on and then talks about the superiority of the gospel of Christ, of the promise and the promise and fulfillment of Christ crucified, that he came to earth as a human and as God. He lived a perfect life to be our substitute, a substitute for our righteousness by living out his, his righteousness. And then he died so that he could be our substitute for our sin and our um, and our condemnation before God so that he was condemned, he was made to be a curse in our place so that we could live by trusting in his sacrifice on our behalf, by gaining forgiveness for our sins. And that that is superior then to the old law, to the Old Testament law. He talks about how the, the Old Testament law cannot say, in fact, the Old Testament law was pointing to the coming of Jesus. And then he, he finally, in this, this latter section, then goes into what it then means to be part of the gospel life, what it means to be in Christ. And so looking at this new way, and most especially in the last couple of chapters, what it means to be in the Spirit, uh, what it means to be connected to God through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so here, as we come to this final chapter, He's been talking about this life in the Spirit and what it means to live by the Spirit, what it means to walk by the Spirit. Um, but now he starts getting into more nitty-gritty details, some, some very particular, very specific things. Last time, when Joe was preaching, he talked about how walking in the Spirit is to be carried out in our fleshly life, in our, that is, in our daily life. Um, and so we are supposed to be living out the qualities of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And of course, most famously maybe within that, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness, self-control. You, you remember those kind of things. In fact, if you want to flip back to chapter 5, you, you can find those. Um, he first talks about the things that are antithesis to the Spirit, in verse 20, uh, and so, sorry, starting in 19, the works of the flesh, and then the fruit of the Spirit when he gets to 22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So that even though these are part of the Spirit, they also do not violate even the Old Testament law. But So I, I grew up in... Uh, in more of a reformed, you would say, fundamentalist context. But I went to seminary um, at a Presbyterian school. And one of the things that they loved to talk about was what they called experimental theology. This came from a big, 
a big influence by um, Scottish Presbyterians, uh, Scottish theologians. And nowadays, that's, that can be kind of a, a, um, a wary term because of how it's being hijacked and being used for sort of a, a religion of developing your own theology but just based on your personal experience. That is not what it has traditionally meant. They are taking an existing term and redefining it to mean that. Instead, you might hear guys like Sinclair Ferguson today or Alistair Begg when they talk about experimental theology. That what they mean is theology that is experienced in practical life. That it is that our faith is not meant to be just a mental faith, because as James, as as the writer James says in the book. Uh, in the word, that faith without works is dead. Instead, our faith is to be tested, is to be experimented uh, with in real life. It is supposed to be lived out, fleshed out, and seen. And so now he is taking even the practical, the practical concepts of the fruit of the Spirit and then applying them to even more specific contexts in everyday life that the Galatians are, gonna go, are going to see are going to go through, and through that, that we can take the same thing. We can experience this. And, and really, if you think about it, as we go through this passage, if you're looking at it closely, it's not hard to see how the walking in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that we were talking about last week, just is saturating all through this passage. That in order for these things to take place, the fruit of the Spirit has to be evident. So let's go ahead and dive in. The first thing that we see is, is that he gives some practical instruction on walking in the Spirit. So the practical instructions that he gives come in verses 1 through 6. Starts out, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That makes sense that he's going to start with a concept of how practically walking in the Spirit looks like in terms of repentance and restoration. It makes very logical sense because there is repentance and restoration, namely the false gospel that's been, that's been brought in. So there are going to be people within the context of, of these churches who have you know, started to buy into, maybe even started to, to abandon the true gospel, and that hopefully they're being brought into conviction. And now there's, there is need for repentance, but there's also... the there is need for restoration here. And so he, he starts, it's interesting, he doesn't start by saying, you who are spiritual should correct them. He says, you should restore them. It's, it's interesting that he takes that approach. Now, we know, right, restoration only happens through true repentance. It's the same way that he has talked about the gospel, that we are actually granted forgiveness from our sins is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance has to come before restoration, before, we're, before we are given new life in Christ. The same is true within the body of Christ, that where there is sin, the only way to be restored is by repentance. But I think he recognizes, it seems like Paul through the Holy Spirit is recognizing that there's going to be a natural tendency, and we all know the tendency, right? That when somebody else has sinned, especially in a way that we find particularly significant, that it can create division, that it can create a sense of superiority, or it can create a wall 
of hurt feelings. There are lots of reasons why. But Paul is, is going straight to kind of the potential problem of the separation that's happening and saying, look, you, it's not time for them just to repent, but you who are spiritual need to restore them. The, the concept, you who are spiritual, can be a little bit challenging because you kind of wonder, well, what does that mean? Is Paul actually saying that there are divisions among them, that there is a separation between, well, some of you are really spiritual, some of you are down here, you know, or, or some commentators have even suggested over the, over the centuries, um, for instance, some of, the, some of the more Catholic theologians have suggested that the spiritual ones are essentially the priests. They're the ones whose job it is to restore. Everybody else, is, you're just there to repent. Um, only the, only the, the priests or the preachers or those type of people can actually do the restoration. But I don't think that that's, that is not fitting. In fact, um, studying it, if you look at the context, the immediate context is chapter 5 where Paul is talking about walking in the Spirit being sort of consumed with, being, again, saturated with the Holy Spirit and his influence on your life. And that is not limited to any class of people. It's not limited to any subsect of the church. It is, an, it is that walking in the Spirit is for everyone. Then it makes sense that the you who are spiritual is for anyone. It is meant to be for anyone who is essentially walking in the spirit. So the spiritual is not a classification system. Instead, it's meant as, as a situation. In other words, if, I, if you see that I am caught up in pride and arrogance and I'm coming across as though I know it all, then somebody within this audience, within this body, within this church who is part of my family and recognizes it and you are not doing the same thing. That's the important. You who are spiritual means you are not caught up in the same thing, but you are being influenced in the Holy Spirit so that you recognize it and are able to, to, to tell me. You come to me and point it out in a loving, gentle way to correct me so that I can be restored, so that I can be not just forgiven, but again, fully accepted and brought into fellowship. And so this, this promise of rest of spirit not is meant to be a gift to us, that God has put the Holy Spirit not just within us, but also because we now live in two worlds with, where we live with the Holy Spirit indwelling us and influencing us and still with our old man, the flesh, living with us and influencing us, that, and the fact that we can, in fact, be deceived, as we'll talk about later, that... God has left it so that we are not alone, but that we have one another around. So that where I, something I struggle with, you don't, and you can help me. And something you struggle with, your neighbors don't necessarily, and, and they can help you. That is a beautiful gift. And the challenge, of course, is that um, we struggle with this because we don't like to be called out and I think sometimes we don't like to call other people out. There's a few different reasons for that, but maybe sometimes it's because, well, we kind of still love the sin that we're caught up in, 
And so we don't want, we don't want to be challenged on that. At other times, we don't like to be called out because there is pride within us. And so we don't like to be called out for sin because then it makes us feel shame and it makes us feel shame in front of other people. And so we, we hate that feeling. And so we recoil or even get defensive. Either we hide or we blame, um, which by the way, if you think about that, that is nothing new. Go back to Genesis chapter three in the fall. When the first sin happens, what immediately happens? Adam and Eve eat the fruit. God comes into the garden. Where are they? They're hiding. God questions them about what happened. What do they immediately do? They start blaming other people. Adam goes, the woman that you gave me. And Eve goes, the serpent tricked me. And the serpent just sat there going. Um, so this is nothing new. This is, this is part of what it means to be sinful people. But it is something that is designed to be for our good. Now, the, there is a automatic other side to this. See, all of the things that, we're gonna, that we talk about here as far as these practical teachings on walking in the Spirit have two sides that Paul gives. One is, how do we treat each other as a body? What's my responsibility to you as a church? And then the other side is personal responsibility. That what is my responsibility simply for me before God? So on the one hand, there is, the good news is God doesn't, God did not just say, all right, this is how you're supposed to treat them. And the risk is that, that one, of, one of us, let's say again, I'm caught up in my pride and arrogance and you come and you try and bring me out of that. You try and show me the truth of my place before God and the need for humility before God because I'm a sinful creature only deserving of wrath apart from grace. You try and hold that out to me. And I want that, but there's also my flesh and the temptations of the devil working against me going, oh, but look, they're not, they have their own problems. They have their own problems. They're just coming to me for mine. Well, there's, there is two sides to that. Again, God gives us the other side is that I am also personally responsible. Each of us is also personally responsible to be watching over our own lives. And you can see that this... Practicing this in real life, it requires, as, as has already been clearly stated from the text itself, it takes gentleness, but clearly there has to be love, there has to be patience, there needs to be self-control. There are a host of the fruits of the Spirit working out in this. So this morning I ask you, do, do you fall into the camp of maybe being unwilling to be corrected easily? Are you the type of person who does not receive correction easily? Or are you maybe the person who you're unwilling to put yourself out there and step out to correct other people within the body? That you are unwilling to seek their restoration? Could be that you think that, that you are in fact not worthy of being restored because you're so wrapped up in the guilt of your sin. It could be that you don't want to admit the truth of your guilt. Could be that you don't open yourself up to, and to be willing to correct other people because you don't want other people doing the same to you in return. Or it could be the fact that you do not want to correct and restore because you like feeling superior and feeling better 
than somebody else who is caught up in a sin. If any of these strike a chord with you this morning, then it suggests that this is part of the watching our own lives where we should repent ourselves or ask others to help us repent and be restored in this matter. The next section comes up from verses two through five where we cover burdens. It says, bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So we've gone from definite sin, right? Somebody is overtaken in a transgression. Um, now we've gone on to bearing one another's burdens. So we've, Paul has, has focused very tightly on sin within the body. Now he, he, widens the, he widens the picture to saying, okay, but it's not just sin that brings problems within the church to the people within the church. There are also the concept of burdens. So these could be circumstantial. That It, it might not be something that is directly related to your sin or the sinful choices that you, the consequences of the sinful choices that you have made. It can also be just the consequence of we live in a sinful fallen world and not everything is going to be hunky-dory. Sometimes things happen. Sickness happens. Yes, we know from scripture that it's possible that, that sickness comes from as a consequence of sin. But a whole lot of other times, it just comes because sickness exists in the world because of the fall. So within that then, the command is that we are to, as a body, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He holds that up because, of course, remember, he has been, he has been contrasting the Old Testament law, the law for righteousness, and the fact that Christ was the end of that. And so with Christ being the fulfillment and therefore the end of the need of the law for us to attain righteousness, now we have a new law. We have a new and living way through Christ himself. We have the law of love. We have the law of the mirror of Christ and his sacrifice and his love for us in our daily lives. So the needs that we have, we support each other within that. And I like the way, I like the way um, Wheaton president, uh, Philip Ryken, uses this in one of his books. He says, every believer is called to be one of God's porters or bellhops, if you know that term better, always ready to pick up someone else's baggage. And that's, that's a good way of describing it because we do, we have baggage. Um, some of it may be related to sin, but a lot of times it's not. It's just the things that have happened to us. Sometimes it's, it's the emotional baggage that we have. Sometimes it's the circumstantial baggage. And we can be there for one another. We are to be there for one another. It's, it's a beautiful thing, right, to have your brothers and sisters come around you and show that they love you by caring for you in a time when you can't care for yourself. It's very humbling, but it's also, it's, it's incredibly life-giving and affirming to receive that, to receive a gift that I couldn't give to myself. Um, 
If you've ever been in a situation where you had a significant illness in the family or significant circumstances, and your your church family has come around come around you to support you with with meals, with rides, with you know, taking maybe taking a load off of housework. There are some ways in which it's it's humbling, and and there's the temptation for it to feel shaming that you're not you're not doing enough on your own. But it is not meant to do that. It is instead meant to show support. It is, a, it is meant to be a reminder that though we are not enough on our own, that God has not left us alone. Instead, he has given us, besides Christ, besides the Holy Spirit, that he has given us each other to support each other, to carry each other's burdens. The other side of that, the personal responsibility side of that, is that it says If anyone thinks himself something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So there might be a temptation, in other words, that that we would look at our circumstances and what we are going through or what we aren't going through as somehow making us better than someone else, that we are somehow superior to somebody else because we aren't going through the same amount of problems. I mean, think about it. If... If you are in an extremely secure financial position, it can be a temptation to look at somebody who's in a very precarious financial position and and just assume that you've got it figured out and mm, it's a shame that they don't. But that may be, uh, you know, yes, there could be personal choices that have been made, personal outlooks that have been made that have caused them problems, but it might just be because, you know, the economy changed. Their type of job is no longer um, is no longer as sought after, or they had urgent medical bills. There's a host of different reasons. It doesn't mean that somehow God has smiled on you and gone, ah, good. And this person going, ah, we'll work on that. Um, no, instead, Paul is saying, don't assume that. Don't make the mistake of somehow thinking that you are better than you actually are. Instead. Your job within this, as far as your outlook, is to test your own work, and then you will have reason to boast in yourself and not your neighbor. I admit, this is one that I, I this concept is one that I struggle with, and I'm not sure whether it's entirely been my upbringing or just the way that I'm most, I, I most commonly hear the word boast used in English but it doesn't have a positive connotation in my head. I don't know what it's like for you, but the word boast typically comes off as a sign of arrogance, right? A sign of pride. And, and so I struggle with this idea of positive boasting, and I was sort of wrestling with how to, how to communicate this. Um, but the word that is used here, uh, the word that is used in terms of boasting is kalkema, kalkema is the Greek word. And it's used about 10 different times within the New Testament. And I found it very interesting when I started looking it up that actually it's used both in the positive and, both, and in the negative. And it's used about the same number of times in each. So there's, there's about five instances where it is used negatively. There's five instances where it is used positively. So let me just flip to a couple of them that use it positively. If you would, go first to Philippians 1.26, if you have a moment. If not, I'll just go ahead and read it out for you. Paul is 
giving his introduction to the Philippian church. And as is often the case, he, talk, he talks about the reasons why he has joy in, in them and is praying for them. And he uses this. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, the word glory there is the same, a positive there. But it's not just where it's reinterpreted. If you go over to 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1.14, Paul uses it in talking with the Corinthian church. Again, keep in mind, this, this is partly interesting to me because he's talking to the Corinthian church, church that he has had many, 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 many problems with and had to do a lot of correction to. And yet, he says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what we read and acknowledge, and I hope you fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, that was interesting because of the difference that the first time they were boasting in Christ. That makes sense, right? That you're bragging on Jesus. But that, that totally makes sense. But here, Paul is saying, one day we're going to stand before Jesus and we're going to brag on you. We're going to boast on you and you're going to boast on us. That is a very interesting idea, the concept that we can be boasting in a good and positive way. I think the, the key there is, is, is there a sense of sinful, selfish pride, or is it just the appreciation and joy of a true sense of, of accomplishment? Not overestimating our value, not overestimating what we have done and what it says about us, but enjoying success, enjoying the success that, it, that has happened. I think we were actually providentially just I was talking with Johnny and he mentioned the fact that like there is a good kind of pride um, he mentioned it this morning what if you take on a new project you decide you you're gonna replace something in your house you've never done it before so you get supplies you do your research pull up a YouTube video something like that and you actually set out and you accomplish it it feels good doesn't it and there's nothing wrong with that there is nothing wrong with feeling good about what you've actually accomplished the Sin is, is if somehow then that makes you look at somebody else and go, ah, I'm more handy than he is. Or if you, if you somehow look at it and go, oh, well, clearly I'm, I'm awesome when it comes to handyman things. I'm amazing when it comes to these projects. And thinking that that somehow makes you more than what you actually are. Um, but there is there's supposed to be joy in actually accomplishing something. So Paul says, look at how you are obeying. Look at how you are striving to obey. You may not be successful in knowing that you're not just coasting, letting everybody else carry your burdens. You are actually endeavoring to meet the challenges by God's grace as best you can. And to whatever measure you're able to do that, you can take satisfaction in that. You can boast in that. You can take a measure of satisfaction in what you're doing. Doesn't mean you're going to be able to cover everything. But the truth is, any of you parents who have kids, 
did you expect all of your children to get the same grades? I mean, kids, uh, and, and especially to my kids, I, I will say this. I don't think you should all get the same grades because the, the honest truth is you're not all capable of, of the same things. But you are all capable of your best effort. You are all capable of, of working as, as best you possibly can. And if you're doing your best, then that is something to be proud of. If your best was a B, fantastic. If your best was an A and you got a B, not as good. Not as impressive. So instead, Paul calls us to look at ourselves and test out. Within the context of needs within the body, the one thing I want to get in our heads this morning is, is if you look at your life, do you, do you find that you are hesitant to share needs because you don't want to be seen as weak? You want to do everything yourself? Are you, are you holding back from sharing needs because you want to be self-sufficient? And the truth is you, you don't have to be and you're not going to be. We were given to each other for that purpose. We are in fact comm- commanded to carry each other's burdens. Or are you on the other side where you don't really want to work that hard, so you are perfectly willing to just go, hey, can you do that for me? 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 And then you, you can sit back and go, cool, I got everybody working for me. I don't have to do anything. If that strikes either one of either side, if that strikes who you are, then I encourage you again, as we started out with, repent and be restored. The final section is, uh, is in verse 6, and it's the most uncomfortable for me personally um, because it's about how we care for teachers, um, which is what I'm doing now. And so it feels really weird to go, this is what you should be doing as far as caring for teachers. But it's here. It's part of the text. Um, it says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with one who teaches. So, I think it's quite possible. We're not given context, so it's very hard for me to say this definitively. But it would make logical sense, right, that Paul was sort of the architects. In Paul's missionary journeys, Paul and his team were the architects of founding the church through the spread of the gospel throughout Galatia. And we know that Paul, and presumably with him, not for sure, but presumably with him, his team, they were what we call tent makers. They worked their own jobs they, didn't, they, they were not vocationally pastors. They, they worked their own jobs and did ministry as well. And Paul even goes, goes into detail to say that the reason for that is so that nobody can ever accuse them of having ulterior motives or of putting undue burden on the people to whom they're, they're ministering. So that, that was a big part of Paul's reasoning. But it makes sense that at least a possibility exists that if they saw that, with Paul, sort of the founder of the church, then at least some people sort of thought that was now the standard for how church was to be done. And while a a pastor isn't deserving of being financially compensated because, well, Paul never did. Um, And so Paul speaks into this and says, "In, in case anybody has this idea, that it 
it is fitting, it is good, in fact, that a one who is taught, he says, must, must share all good things with the one. He just presents a principle. And I think that's useful for us right now because we're in a non-traditional, from American standpoint, um, model. We do not have a single or, or multiple full-time paid staff. We have four lay pastors, four guys who are unpaid, and one who is part-time. This is interesting for us because it, it simply makes the statement. And, it, and also interesting because it's the one of these instructions that combines both the, both the personal responsibility for me and the personal responsibility within the church as a whole. So it says, I am supposed to share all good things with the people who teach me. So David, Scott, Chris, Joe, as a member of this body that I am supposed to be sharing with you. So as a part of this body, our body has a responsibility to support, to contribute um, to our pastors. And as an individual, I have a responsibility to not just look at other people and go, yes, you should in fact contribute to our pastors so that our church can do that. Now, I have a personal responsibility to contribute to the ministry of this church. And it says all good things. I think that's, that's also useful to us because it's not just talking about paying a full-time guy. It's not just talking about paying what we need to to pay a part-time guy. It's just talking about supporting in a broad sense. There isn't a lot of limitations within this. So for this morning, I would say, you know, our circumstances may, may look different today than they look like in a year, two years, five years from now. If such time comes, uh, if or when the time comes when God calls us to pay a full-time pastor, then it's our responsibility as a church to, to individually contribute so that we can supply what is necessary for that pastor and his family um, to survive well, to thrive. And in this time period, then that looks different. Maybe it's not about necessarily giving more money. Maybe it's about giving time. Maybe it's about giving aid. Um, and if you're wondering if, if God is kind of poking you to say, I want you to do more in that regard, then one thing that you can do is go to your pastors and say, how? How can I? Or maybe another way say, if Think about it, pray about it. Find something that you think would be really useful as you watch their lives to one or more of the pastors. Um, and then go up and say, can I do this? I would like to do this, can I do this? And if they say yes, go for it. And if they say, eh, it's not really helpful, then, then say, okay, well, if that's not helpful, then give me something else that would be um, as a means of, of doing that. But just as a side note, I want to say thank you for the way you guys do this in some measures already. Um, there are a host of ways in which you do support us. You pray for us. You encourage us. Um, you show gestures of kindness. We've had people who have given us special kind of dates out as a group um, and time together. Um, you guys supported us within the budget so that we could go away and do an elders retreat. 
you supported us, uh, you're supporting us so that we can do continuing education things uh, within the budget as well. There are a host of ways in which you as a church body are fulfilling this and we're grateful. So I don't want to make you, make you think that what I'm saying is you guys stink, step it up. Um, that's not what we're saying at all. Um, so having given th these instructions on how to live within the spirit, Paul now turns. So he says, um, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul's been talking about specifics. And now I think he recognizes through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he recognizes that there are, there are going to be challenges. There are going to be conflicts. There are going to be things that hold us back from that. And there are going to be times when it is difficult for us to see, um, see the truth of the value. And so he encourages us and just lays it out there. Um, so he first says to not be deceived. And he gives us this concept of sowing and reaping. So kids who are in here, I'm just curious. I, I won't ask you how many times. And, and even the adults who are in here, remember when you were kids. I don't want to know how many times. But you can remember times, right, where you wanted to do something that your parents told you not to, and you knew it was wrong, and you did it. And as far as you know, you got away with it, right? Now, for those of you who are kids in this room, just want to, want to let you know, a lot of times you didn't. We might, not have, we might not have called you on it always. It might not have always served. But I can tell you from personal experience, both as a, as a kid and hearing stories from my parents later on, uh, and as an adult and, and as a parent myself, that sometimes you just feel like there's an important lesson in not calling something out, but we still know that you did it. But there were plenty of times where I got away with things that I shouldn't have. Um, there were times where I instigated fights between my siblings. Um, sadly, there were times that, that as a kid that I stole, that I didn't, I didn't confess, I didn't own up to it at the time, um, and I got away with it. It happens. In this world, you can conceivably get away with things before men. But Paul says it's not happening when it comes to God. Do not be deceived because the point is he sees that there may, may be those who hear his message and who give lip service or maybe even striving and think that they're, and either think they are succeeding because they're deluding themselves about their own sin or they know that they're sinning but they think that they've either got it under control or can cover it up in such a way that other people won't know. And so he's pointing out that, yeah, you're not getting away with anything. I mean, God knows it all. So there is no way of, as he says, mocking God. 
And what that means is essentially, you're not going to, to look at what God says he wants from you and go, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to get away with it with no consequences. Everything's going to be fine because that essentially mocks God's sovereignty. That essentially laughs in God's face and goes, you're not in control of anything. And God will not be mocked. He is sovereign. He is in control of everything. So he, when he knows what's going to happen, when he knows what you are doing, then you will get called on it. It might not be this moment, and it might be through letting you have the fruits of your own sin and the corruption that it brings. It could be different ways that it looks, but God is, in fact, working in and around your circumstances and any sins that you may commit. So he says, don't be deceived. You're not getting away with it. Now, then he goes on with this sowing and reaping thing and says, whatever a man sows, that he also reaps. Well, if you go back to Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20, Jesus is talking about, talking to his disciples about spiritual principles. And he, he brings up what's really kind of a, a mirror for this. It's the tree and the fruit. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are tree bears gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So you can see there's a distinct parallel here. That there is, there's just a spiritual reality in place that sin corrupts. Even if you think you're getting away with it at the moment, what you're doing, your sin will have a corrupting effect. Um, as John Brown in one of his books said, to suppose that sin can end in happiness is as, is as absurd as to suppose that weeds will produce wheat. It's just not going to happen. There is no possible way. So our fleshly sinful desires left in themselves take us spiraling down the path. And we see it in our own lives. You, you know it. We know it from the world around us. I mean, you can look at, you can look at the crime blotter. You can look at the political dramas. You can look at um, things going on over the last few years in Hollywood. You can look at the history of our country, you can look at the history of our world. You can go into the pages of Scripture and look at what happened with the nation of Israel. Sin, left to its own devices, just gets worse and worse. But the other side of that is also true. That, that God is not just dooming us, instead, that within the Spirit, that the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit, eternal life. So just as sin is going to drag us further and further from, from God and down into corruption and misery and despair, then follow, walking within the Spirit and seeing those fruit of the Spirit come more, more and more out of us draws us closer and closer into Christ. And we see the beauty of it. We experience the joy of it until one day, eternal life. We reach heaven we receive well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, and we are with him forevermore. 
And so then he, he closes this section by saying that we should not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I don't know what it's like for you, um, but patience is often not my gift, um, not my strongest suit. Um, so this, this metaphor of sowing and reaping and understanding the process of how we grow things is very useful. It takes, it takes time from the time you plant a seed to where you see a sprout come up. It takes even more time from when, for that, that sprout to grow into a fully-fledged plant. And depending on the type of plant, I mean, it could still be years before that plant actually produces fruit. I mean, you talk about what happens with some types of trees. You know, they can, they can need to be cultivated for years before they give, give off fruit. So it is nice to be reminded that there is a process involved. When I'm striving to follow these things, when I'm striving to care for other people, if, if I'm striving to, to help somebody who is caught up in a sin and either they don't receive it well or their growth in grace is slow and it just seems like we're, we're going through the same cycles over and over and over again, it is nice to be reminded that this is not the end of the story. Just because I don't see it now, God says fruit is coming. It is guaranteed. I mean, he didn't say, you'll probably reap the harvest. No, you will. There will be a harvest out of this. Same thing is true in my own life when I'm, when I'm struggling with my own sin or when I'm struggling with my own burdens, that this, just because today was an embarrassment, it doesn't change the fact that God loves me and has redeemed me and that he will restore me and will continue to build me up. And there is coming a day when I will see, when I will be able to see progress in this. And the truth is, it's quite possible I, there's already progress now, it's just hard for me to see it in the middle of the circumstances. But this reminds me that this is not the end. There is a much deeper truth at work. So what does it mean for us then to practically speaking, as far as this passage, walk in the spirit? Verse 10 is kind of the summation of all of it. So as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It is as simple and as difficult as that. Um, Do you see this in your own life? This morning, if you're a believer in Christ, because this passage is, is specifically, there's not a whole lot of, hey, if you're, if you're a non-believer, this is what you should do. This is all about speaking to the church, speaking to believers. Do you recognize yourself growing more and more in this? If, if you don't, grab somebody and say, man, this is convicting. I need help. Um, do not be afraid to, to expose your weaknesses. Um, and, and for those of us when, for those of us around, if somebody comes in t and shares something with you, then obviously let's live out the truth of this passage. 
carry their burdens, restore those who are in sin. This morning, if you're not a believer, if you're not sure where you stand with God, if you're not sure what you, th- what you think about him, uh, one of the things that I would say this passage maybe calls out, should call out to you is, is look around. If you know people in this room, look around and say, do you see these truths evident? Do you see these truths reflected in their lives? Um, I would dare say if you're, if you're paying attention, then the answer is yes, you do. And the reason why I say you, I want you to do that is because that's one of the evidences of the truth of the gospel. So this is one of the reflections even that, that Scripture tells us they, they will know we are Christians by our love, right? So if you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand with the Lord, look at the people around spirit life. And if they do, maybe not perfectly, but if, if you see it, then start probing more because it's meant to drive you to the truth that the gospel is real. The message of Jesus is real and you can be saved by it. You can be redeemed by it. By the way, if, if you feel like you don't see that, um, kindly, I hope, but tell us. If, if you don't see those things true, say, I'm, this is supposed to be true of you guys. I'm not really seeing it. Um, th- that's good for us to know, right? Um, so, that we can, so that we can walk through that and repent of what we need to repent. Um, do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that you are with us, that for all those who are in Christ, you are, you are with us daily through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're linked to you. And so we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to give the Spirit more influence, um, that you would, you would help us to release control, to learn more, through the word, through prayer, uh, through the ministry of other godly believers around us, um, and to hear your voice, and then not either be so selfish or so afraid that we refuse to respond. Help us. We pray that we would reflect that more and more so that anybody who comes in these doors or anybody who we touch uh, who does not know you uh, we'll recognize that there is something different and we'll, we'll want to know what we know, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus is his name. We ask that, that through this, that our love would continue to grow and we ask that, that through this, that the name of Christ Jesus would continually be made more and more great in our city, in our region, in our state, in our country, in our world. For his glory and by his name. Amen. Uh, at this